Joshua chapter 9. And as I prayed, a very cool uh, section of Scripture, and I had to do some thinking about this one, and some praying about this one, and I think it's, it's so applicable. It's fascinating to me. So Joshua chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Joshua 9, 1, it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. And that's really an introduction to the next couple or three chapters as we're going forward. To let you know, they're in the land, and they have made a splash, and they are known to be this invading force, and so the kings of the land are beginning to band together and realize trouble's coming, storm's on the way. And so that's, that's an introduction, and then we get into the rest of chapter 9 with this interesting story. When the inhabitants of Gabeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys, wineskins worn out and, and torn and mended, and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. I don't know why I'm talking this way. <laughs> the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Ug, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtarot. And so our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and it has become crumbled. These wineskins which were filled were new, and behold, they are torn. These clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. Yeah, about 12 miles. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Jesus said, shalom, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I am no fan of conflict. 
I don't like confrontations. I prefer to avoid them if possible. And I assume most of us don't like confrontations, unless you got some issues, in which case, let's make an appointment and talk about that. Although I will not fight you about it. Most of us want peace. Most of us just want things to be calm and things to be okay. And even as Joshua and the Israelites here conquer and cleanse the promised land, peace was their prerogative. Now that may sound a little strange to hear because they come in warring. They take out Jericho. They take out I. They're ready to take out more. But peace was their prerogative. As we talked about, I don't know if it was midweek or last week, but when they went, it was midweek, when they went up into the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim to speak through the blessings and the curses, which they did just in the last chapter, they had to go past Shechem. And the only way to do that would be either to wipe out Shechem or to have some kind of a peace accord with Shechem. They had that prerogative. In fact, if you look in your Bibles back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, turn back there just for a moment. You're only one book back, easy to find. I love to see you all turning. Love to know there are still churches today where people bring their Bibles and turn and follow along. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, where Moses is talking about warfare and the warfare that is ahead of them, and he says, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself and you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you which are not of the cities of these nations. That is, the seven nations in the land. Those nations are marked for judgment. Beginning with Jericho and continuing on, the nations were marked for judgment. But God says, however, there will be more city-states that you will run into beyond those who are marked out for this judgment. Offer them peace. That's your prerogative. And he says, only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy all of them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. This is a serious reminder as they come into the land that the land was going to be cleared of the transgressors. In other words, God has targeted the transgressors. And you need to remember this, that God has targeted those who are in opposition to him, that's the whole point. Had they repented, they would not have been targeted. How do you know that? Rahav, the harlot in Jericho, turned to the Lord, asked to be saved. Had all Jericho joined her in that, all Jericho might have been spared. Had I, instead of fighting back, had I sought peace in repentance before the Lord, they would have been spared. I, I'm not just guessing this. I know the heart of our Lord. And I know it is not his will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his desire. But he knows what he knows. 
And he understands that all of these nations are in trouble because they have made their choice. This was not a genocidal slaughter. This was targeted, it was divine punishment for the widespread wickedness in the land and the sin. It was also, and I'm gonna move back here because the sun is still doing its thing. It was divine protection for Israel against the sin of the land. We need to get that and understand as we go through because people are still asking me questions, still wondering, I just can't wrap my head around all of this, all of this slaughter, all of the, of the killing, divine punishment for sin. And my friends, everyone who sins and falls short of the glory of God and stays in that place of rebellion will be lost. Not because God wants it that way, but because they leave him no other choice. There is divine punishment. There is also divine protection. As Israel's coming into the land, God is telling his people, I do not want you to partake of their things. I don't want you to be like them. I don't want you to adopt their pagan realities. And of course, Israel will and have all kinds of problems because of it. But that was the point of the clearing of the land. Just to understand when it came to these cities marked out for judgment, condemnation, especially those cities beyond it, those cities who would accept an offer of peace, peace was viable. Peace was Joshua's prerogative. I remind you again, the promised land is not a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of the victorious Christian life. And while we look for peace with those around us, my friends, we're not on a playground. We're on a battleground. There's a reason we call it the victorious Christian life because there are battles over which we must or, or in which we must overcome, in which we will become victorious. It's not social, it is not political, it is not cultural, it is spiritual. Our victory, let me say it again, it is not social, it is not political, it is not cultural, it is spiritual. This is the battleground on which we fight. But the Gibeonites show up and they bring an unexpected challenge to Israel, something that hasn't happened yet, a, a, a new kind of a battle, a new fight, and Israel's not prepared for it. They're not ready. The Gibeonites also picture a similar challenge for us as Christians. And I want you to walk through this with me. I think it's fascinating. I really sought to understand because remember that the Bible tells us, and I'm gonna read this verse in a moment, but the Bible tells us that these things happen to them for an example for us. So as we look at this, the application of everything that's happening to the people of Israel, it applies to us. It's for our example to understand something of the battles that we fight. Well, it's been said by some commentators that Israel faced three kinds of enemies when they entered the land. Three enemies. Jericho represents the first kind of enemy, and that is the fortified world around us. Jericho, the fortified world that we have to go up against and we have to enter, and we enter by faith, we enter by worship, as we worship the Lord, blowing the shofar and shouting the name of Jesus, we take on the fortified world, the Jericho that is out there. Secondly is I, the second city, and that represents the enticing flesh that we would fight against. And, and this, you can find this actually in several commentaries. I'm not sure where to stand here. How soon can we get these blinds up? Can we do this yesterday? Is that possible? 
I'll just stand, that way I can move around. Jericho, the fortified world. I, the enticement of the flesh, as they thought they could take it, it was no big deal, and went up against I, and they were routed. Remember that story? And then thirdly, the commentators will say, Gabeon. Gabeon is the third picture of the kind of battle that we fight in the Christian life. And Gabeon, the commentators say, represents the wily devil. The craftiness of Satan. And those are very interesting applications. I think the Gibeonites represent something completely different. And I'm gonna talk to you about what that is. I'll show you that in, in a few minutes. But Jesus does clearly characterize the devil. So we need to be completely aware of what the Bible says about Satan. Jesus says in John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So as the Gibeonites come along and they are lying through their teeth, they are craftily deceiving Joshua and the children of Israel. People say, see, that is a picture of Satan. And truly, it is satanic. Their behavior, their actions, the deception, that is very much of the enemy. Jesus says whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That is the devil. And every opportunity we get to, to speak of Satan, to talk about his wiles and his craftiness, we do so so that we would not be taken advantage of by the devil's schemes. That we would be aware he is a real entity and all he does is steal, kill, and destroy. That's his whole MO. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. And one of his more dangerous schemes, and we see this with the Gibeonites, it comes by the forging of alliances in deception. Come on, let's, let's make a covenant together. Come on, let's, let's get in this business agreement together. Come on, let's walk side by side. And there's something deceptive in that. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says there are gonna be Christians among you who will deceive you. There will be those who look like you, walk like you, talk like you, dress like you, show up like you, do the things that you do. They'll have the fall festival with you. They will be there among you, and yet they are wolves. They are deceivers. They are liars. And they have entered into a false covenant. What does Satan do? He gets inside to take us out. Isn't that great? <laughs> I don't say that to freak anybody out or, or, or to cause us to be paranoid. I've said this many times over the years. It's not about being paranoid. It is about being prepared. It's about having eyes wide open. It is about knowing his word and his spirit well enough that we can detect where there's something going on inside that is untoward, that is not of God. But along come the Gibeonites, a couple of quick notes about the Gibeonites, things to understand. Number one, they were marked out for God's judgment. So unlike what Moses says in Deuteronomy 20, where he says those other cities, you can make peace with them, but of the seven nations that are in the land, you are to take them out completely. The Gibeonites are among the seven, cities, the seven nations. You see, the Gibeonites, they're as, as a group of people, they are 
Hivites, as we'll find out. So they are among the seven nations. And they were marked out for God's judgment. You need to know that before the story even gets underway. What do you mean marked out for judgment? Well, I'll let Jude explain it. Jude, verse three. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The, the book of Jude is fascinating. That singular, singular little letter begins with him saying, I wanted to just write about salvation, but I realized I have to write about the fight. I gotta write to you about the battle that we are engaged in. And I gotta bring some clarion warning. He says in verse four, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're in among you, he says. This was in the first century. And so the whole of the book of Jude is a warning against those who would come in, come up from within, and try to deceive and try to lie and try to bend the truth to their own purposes. And Jude says these are marked out for condemnation. They were marked out ahead of time. The plan was already laid in place. God already knows who's going. He knows who's going down. He knows who's gonna be judged. Think about that. Now, you may think for a moment, Rick's going Calvinist. I'm not. I'm not. God knows who's gonna be saved. And God knows who's gonna be condemned. He does not force our hand. We still have free will, but he's God. He knows. And when I have this conversation with people, I always bring it back to this. Is it his predetermination, predestination, or is it free will? And I say, yes. Yes. He knows. He has already foreseen, and by his foreknowledge, he then predetermines. That is, he knows if you're gonna choose him or reject him. If you choose him, you are predetermined to be saved. If you reject him, by your free will, you are predetermined to be condemned, marked out for condemnation. Does that make sense? Are we all on the same page with that one? He's God. He knows. Doesn't mean you don't have a choice, but it means he knows. And so there are those who are marked out for judgment, like the Gibeonites, marked out ahead of time. Remember, God declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. And Jesus affirms this, John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now, you may hear that and say, is it me? You know, like the apostles around the table on the, the, at the Lord's Supper. Is it me, Lord? One of you will betray me. Is it me? The fact that they're asking the question means they're all capable of betrayal. Right, that the thought would even enter your mind. If you're sitting here this morning and you hear me say some are marked out for condemnation and you say, is it me? Is it me? Might I be marked out for judgment? Not if you believe in Jesus. Not if you belong to Jesus. If you believe in him and you belong to him, you are not marked out for condemnation. Well, what if I don't know? Well, let's have a conversation because you need to know. And you can choose him here and now, this morning, to believe and to follow him, but the Gibeonites were among those who were marked out by their own sin. 
marked out for judgment, marked out for condemnation because they were among the evil and the paganism in the land. They were Hivites, as I said. Now, note this real quickly. Gibeon, the city of Gibeon, it literally translates, it's Gibbon, and it translates hill city. Hill city, Gibbon. Hivites are actually, it's spoken in the Hebrew, be Hivai, Hivai, and the Hivai, it just means villagers. That sounds like a pretty serious threat, doesn't it? The villagers of Hill City. I mean, how, how dangerous can these people be? The rest of the Hivai, the Hivites, as we call them, mostly lived up in the north toward Mount Hermon, the northern areas of Israel, up north of the Galilee. But these villagers were settled there in Hill City, which was just north of Jerusalem, southwest, actually, of Ai and Jericho. So if you come across, let's say the Jordan River is here, you cross the Jordan River, and you come to Jericho, and you take it out, and then you take out Ai, well, Hill City is just southwest of there. They are in Israel's line of fire. They are in the direct line of sight. They are going to be taken out. They see this. They know this. The hill city villagers. But again, it sounds kind of harmless to me. You're going to go take out hill city village? Really? Sin often sounds harmless. Sin often looks like a villager of hill city. No big deal, no problem. That's the deception. They are a threat. They are a danger. And the thing to understand about Gibeon is we don't even see this yet, but they actually represent four cities. Four, it's not just the one. It's four different outposts, four locations. If you look at verse 17 of Joshua chapter 9, it says, Then the sons of Israel set out, and they came to their cities on the third day, and their cities were Gibeon and Hephirah and Be'erot and Kiriath-Jerim. There's four cities. By the way, those four cities would translate, Gibeon would be hill city, and then Hephirah would be Little Lion Village, Cub Village, I guess you could call it. And then you come to Be'erot, which is Watertown. And the final city, Kiryat Jerim, you could just call it Forest Lawn. So those are the four cities that they're facing, but there are four of them, not just one, and the deception is getting bigger. So you have the Gibeonites were, first of all, marked out for judgment, and secondly, they came manipulating God's people with a ruse. That's why we're calling this the ruse of Gibeon. Back in verse four, again, it says, they acted craftily and set out as envoys. Craftily is orma in the Hebrew, and it means with cunning, wily, with guile. We could call this the guile of the Gibeonites. They set out lying. They wore raggedy clothes on their backs to protect their own hides. They came along carrying old wineskins and worn-out backpacks on their donkeys to obscure their identity. They walked with patched sandals on their feet to conceal their actual proximity to Israel. Like I said, they were 12 to 15 miles away from Gilgal, where Israel was encamped. They were not from a far, far country. They were right there. And they came with flattery. Go back and look at verse 9. It says, they came and they said to Joshua, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. 
We have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. They don't mention, by the way, the recent takedowns of Jericho and Ai. They omit that. Why would they omit that? It would give them away. See, news does not travel or did not travel as fast then as it does now. Now I just pop open my, my phone, pop open an app, and I know exactly what's happened just then. But in those days, news took a long time to travel. And so they're acting as though they don't know about Jericho or I. Of course they do. That's why they sent the envoy. envoy. But, but they're acting like they're from somewhere else, so they don't mention those two at all, or it would have blown their cover. They come along flattering, saying, oh, the Lord your God, and oh, your victories, and, and we're so impressed. Flattery feels good but it is often a deceit. It is often a ruse. Listen to what the New Testament says about this. Paul writes in Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They're the ones who come along and want you to feel really good about who you are and really comfortable that they are on your team, they're your cheerleaders, they're with you until they turn on you. Flattery is not a good thing. Encouragement, support, that's one thing. Flattery is completely different. Now this brings us to the heart of this story today and why I believe we need to be looking at it and thinking it through. And I'm gonna bring my seat back over because I think I beat the sun for now. (laughs) I repeat to you, the Gibeonites represent a subtle difficulty in the Christian life. Not the devil, that's too easy. Something more subtle. They don't represent or they're not like the fortified world of Jericho or the alluring flesh of I. They are more subversive in the challenge that they present. Now again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Let me pause in the story for a moment and just say this. It is unnerving to me to see how quickly Christians follow after celebrity. How fast Believers clamor to the latest intrigue or movement or teaching or rally. All we need is someone to speak our language. We just need someone to champion our cause, right? To be on our side, to tickle our ears. And I see this all the time. And I am prey to it as well. It is so easy. Oh, who's the latest teacher? Who's the new speaker? Who's the guy out there? Why are we looking for the latest when we have the ancient paths? Seek the ancient paths, the Bible says. But we're we're so quickly intrigued by these things. And Paul called it out, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled because it feels good. Man, yesterday, we were sitting in the living room talking late afternoon, and my left ear was just tickling like crazy just driving me nuts. I excused myself, went to the bathroom. I got some tissue. I'm like trying to dig my whole head out. Something's, you know, don't worry. I didn't like pull out a bug or anything. It's not that gross. 
But it just, I, you know, I had to scratch. And, and when, you, when you feel that way and, and all of a sudden you, you get that spot, that sweet spot, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If Cheryl had come in the bathroom, she would have found me going, oh, this is good. Our ears start to tickle, and when they scratch, and when the, when the speaker, when the teacher, when the pastor starts to say the things, that, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes me feel good. That tickles my ears. And, and Paul's talking about these days. He says, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own, not their own belief, not their own faith, teachers in accordance to their own desires. Oh, that's what I wanted to hear. That's what I wanted to hear. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is a subtle deception. And it's why, again, we come back to the word over and over and over. Not because the word is our God, but the word is of our God. The word is spoken by our God. He has magnified his word above all his name. So we come back to the truth, which is right here in front of us, and yet, why do we get duped? 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul counsels, I said this earlier, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Thing is, we are. We are, no offense, but the devil's playbook is super thin, and while our naivete is super thick, he keeps doing the same things he's been doing since the very beginning, and humanity keeps buying it just like it has from the beginning. And even among Christians within the church. Listen, Satan has been studying humanity for ages. He knows what we do. He knows what we like. He knows how to get our attention. So don't be surprised if he knows how to catch you or me off guard with his subtle subterfuge. It's so intense. Speaking of Antichrist... Jesus says in John 5, 43, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And he's talking about Antichrist. And this world is ripe for Antichrist. Ripe for a world leader to stand up and everybody just to fall in line. Man, that ought to unsettle our self-assurance. Let him who stands take heed lest he falls. So the wisest among us, the most self-assured among us, the most studied among us ought to stand up and say, wait a minute, I am capable of being deceived. Joshua was. Joshua was. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything Carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Examine, dokimazate in the Greek is put it to the test. Test it. Test this word, test this morning's teaching. You go back sometime today or tomorrow and you test the teaching. You reread it and think, was he correct on that? Is that the right application? Is that the correct interpretation of the scriptures? Put it to the test. And by the way, the reason why it says examine everything carefully, it's just one word. It's, it, it, examine is in the present active imperative, <laughs> which means, very simply put, immediately, continually, and intentionally examine it. Examine it right now. Examine it with an ongoing intensity and examine it with intentionality to be sure it's the truth. 
Why are you riding on this, Rick? It's the examination that we so easily fail. If we think we got this, if we bank on ourselves, if we lean on our own understanding, listen to the way that James writes it. James chapter three, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, note this, there's a contrast. The wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, and unwavering without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Remember, peace is our prerogative. And we can make peace when we are solid in the truth and we have the wisdom that is from above. What I'm getting at here is if there is any spiritual gift we need, and, and to me, the application of this entire story is this. If there's any singular spiritual gift that is needed in the church today upon whom the ends of the ages have come, the one we need to tend and cultivate is spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. That's what's lacking in the story. That's why the Gibeonites are able to pull off this ruse against Joshua and the people of Israel. John, in his book, writes in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And when he says spirits, don't think only about angelic or heavenly or demonic. Think about human. You test every spirit. And he goes on and says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets, false spirits. And by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, the incarnation. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's good news. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, and I'm just throwing a bunch of these verses out to you quickly here, Paul says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly empty chatter, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, and some have professed this and thus gone astray from the truth. So back to the story, even Joshua, spirit-filled, spirit-led Joshua was duped by the guile of the Gibeonites. The, the ruse, the lie, the deception, he fell for it. He made peace with them in their craftiness. Why? Why, Joshua, how? The single greatest source of trouble for Israel once they come into the promised land already happened once in their first, first routing by, by I, and it's happening again, verse 14 of Joshua chapter nine, 
and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. That is the key verse in the story. This is how the Gibeonites pulled it off, is Joshua and the Israelites did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And that's when you get deceived. Well, I have my Bible open. Did you ask for the counsel of the Lord? Are you seeking God by his spirit and in his word? They did not ask. I'm gonna give you four things to jot down for the rest of our time. And the first one is very simply this, all about discernment, discernment. Number one, discernment depends on direct counsel. Discernment depends on direct counsel. When it says they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord, the word counsel there is pay, pay, P-E, in the Hebrew, and it also translates mouth, the mouth of God. They did not seek to listen to the mouth of God. Discernment depends on the direct mouth of the Lord, on direct counsel. Proverbs chapter two, verse two says, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, Lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth. Pay, same word. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. From his mouth. They did not ask for the mouth of the Lord, the counsel of God, the spoken word of God. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter four, verse four, quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, and that's important to note, he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and the word mouth, same word, pay, it's counsel. The counsel of the Lord. By the way, notice the contrast between what Jesus says of what comes from the mouth, the counsel of God, and what the Gibeonites bring. Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone. What did the Gibeonites bring? They brought stale bread. Dry and crumbled, God's word is never stale. It's never stale. They pour old wine. You know what wine does? It dissipates, it evaporates. But you, Paul says, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. They wore old, raggedy clothing. The Bible says all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves, Peter says, with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen, the Gibeonites were not clothed in humility. They were clothed in false poverty. And there is a difference between humility and poverty. You know what the difference is? Perspective. Humility comes of the right perspective. Poverty is, it, it comes of sin. And, and I'm not saying if you're having financial problems, it's, it's, it's sin in your life. It could be. But the reality is, humility comes of perspective, the right perspective before the Lord. It's recognizing any wisdom I have, it's not from me. Any discernment that I have been given, I have been given. It's wisdom from enough, uh, from above. Put another way, Proverbs chapter three, verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. 
Discernment depends on direct counsel. Picking up the story, continue on in verse 16. It came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out and they came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Hepharah and Be'erot and Kiriath-Urim. Verse 18, the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against their leaders. Let me ask you a question. Is that helpful? <laughs> There's a question that Cheryl will ask me at times, you know, when, when I bring up some issue that's, you know, we're, we're perhaps in a, in a warm conversation uh, of differing denominational perspectives. And, uh, and I'll, I'll say something like, well, but you did this then. And she'll say, is that helpful? <laughs> I really hate when she says that because the answer is always no. Just using it for fuel for the fire. I gotta have something. See, see, she's got this amazing memory. I remember nothing. Well, you remember two and a half years ago when we had this same discussion, you said this? You're stupid. <laughs> Because it's all I got. You know, I got nothing else. Anyway, <laughs> does grumbling help? Is that helpful? Such a side note there. Had nothing to do with anything <laughs> except to tell you that don't get your discernment from me because I'm <laughs> not the right guy. You get it from this word. How will grumbling instruct the children of Israel on handling the current situation? It is not helpful. The leaders bought into the deception. By the way, the rest of the Israelites did too, but the leaders, they, now they won't, they made a covenant. The rest of the Israelites are like, come on, take them out. No, we made a promise to them that we wouldn't. We're now in a covenant with these people. Yeah, but they lied, they deceived you. Yeah, yeah, but we made a promise. And so the children of Israel, they, they are just grumbling and they're discontent. Number two about discernment, discontent dilutes discernment. Discontent dilutes discernment, especially when the discontent is with your leaders. Can I just encourage you for a moment? We talked about leadership last week. Instead of grumbling against a boss or grumbling against a teacher or grumbling against a parent if you're a kid living at home or grumbling against a shepherd or an elder or a church leadership, instead of grumbling, pray. Pray for them. Pray for the idiots that God put in charge. No offense, guys, bros. I'm not saying you guys. But, but you, should, you need to understand the humility of, of the men that I get to serve with and how often when we meet, and I've said this before, the first prayer out of most of their mouths is God give us wisdom because we don't have it. It's not infallible people. There are no infallible people outside of Jesus Christ. And so when leaders make a decision that you disagree with, pray for them. Don't grumble. Pray. Instead of murmuring, intercede on their behalf. And by the way, it's really interesting because last week when we were talking about leadership in the church, Hebrews 13, verse 17, I quoted this verse, obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would not be profitable for you. Listen to the very next verse. He says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have 
a good conscience or that we can be sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. No one leads in a church, well, most people don't lead in a church setting without desiring simply to serve. And those who want something other than service, that is power or pride or the fulfillment of some ego trip, they're gonna fall. They will wash out. But pray, don't grumble, pray. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, and he's speaking specifically to the men when he says, first of all, then I urge entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, Biden, are you praying for the president? He's not my president. Pray for him. He's in leadership. Says for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me tell you about a lie that has been propagated in our culture, in our country, in, in America, and that is that protest is a good thing. This is just Rick's opinion. So let me step aside from the Bible and tell you. Protest is a good thing. Burning down cities and shouting in the street and breaking windows and destroying businesses, that's a good thing. That's where our country has come. Freedom of speech is one thing. Raggedy protest, that's another. And we are called as Christians to be above the fray. And there are those who would say, yeah, but living above the fray doesn't get the job done. Living at peace and being quiet and tranquil, that all sounds fine. Great for a Sunday afternoon, pastor, but that doesn't get the job done. Pray. That gets the job done. You trust the Lord. That gets the job done. And we, for our part, we continue forward in this quiet tranquility that Paul is talking about because he says there's one God, one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And Paul says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And then he says, listen, bros, listen to this. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. He's gonna go on and talk to the ladies, but he's talking directly to the men. Why does he have to call the men to pray? Because the ladies are typically the ones who show up for prayer. While the men are busy fighting the fight, or so we think. And Paul says, pray, pray, because discontent dilutes discernment. Prayer has an opposite effect. Prayer brings discernment. Prayer develops discernment. Prayer deepens devotion. Do not undervalue the power of submitted prayer. For those who are in authority, even if you think they're wrong, pray, because wrath and dissension and discontent and grumbling and murmuring dilute discernment. You will not discern as well if you're grumbling. And I know this personally. When I'm upset, I don't think straight. When I'm emotional and contentious, when I'm critical or accusatory, you know what I'm doing? I'm defending my own self 
righteousness. I'm right, they're wrong. Pray and get back in that place of humility, that perspective of humility before the Lord. Prayer will increase discernment. By the way, praying for your leaders, praying for those in authority, praying for those around you, it will increase their discernment and it will increase yours as well. Verse 19, but all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This is what we will do to them, even let them live, so the wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. And I just love that. Covenant was everything to Israel. Commitments and promises meant something to the leadership under Joshua. They recognized we made a covenant in the name of Yahweh. How in the world can we go back on that? We can't violate that. Yeah, but they lied to you. They deceived you to get into the covenant. Yes, they did. But we made the promise. And I find this very interesting. Covenant and commitment ought to mean more to us. We could learn from the people of Israel here that when you make a promise, when you make a commitment, when you get into a contractual agreement, see it through. Number three, discernment does not deny integrity. Discernment does not deny integrity. What do you mean, Rick? That means if you realize something after the fact, you still are called to act with integrity. I was lied to, and that's what got me into this mess. Yeah, so now that you're in the mess, act in the mess with integrity. Do the right thing. For your part, follow through. What if, like Israel, you were duped into a deal? Anybody ever been duped into a deal? conned into signing a contract that you really didn't want to sign, misled into making some kind of a a commitment, the biblical answer, even if you were lied to to get you into it, keep your commitment. Keep the covenant. Why? Proverbs 11, verse three, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe, glorify God in the day of the visitation. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Let me give you an example of this, and this is just one of, there are so many other examples we could go with. Marriage, the example of marriage. Think about this. In the first century, along comes Paul and the other apostles, and they start preaching this Jesus, who the Gentile world had never heard of, and preaching this faith in Jesus and what had taken place in Jerusalem among the Jewish people, but now is going out to the Gentiles, and Gentiles were getting saved right and left. You know what that means? In a pagan marriage, the wife got saved and husbands did not. Or sometimes the other way around. The husband comes home, honey, guess what? I believe in Jesus we're going to church on Sunday. And she's like, what's church? I'm going to pagan temple. Think about what it did to marriages. In, I'm not even talking about today. Marriages in the first century where one person became a believer and the other one was not. 
What kind of division? And of course, the believers now coming for counsel. Well, what do I do? She doesn't believe. I can leave her, right? I'll just go marry a believer. My sister who sits on the same row with me, she understands me. That pagan wife of mine. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, to the married I give instructions. So think of that context. To the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, but I, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. I know she's still a pagan man, stay with her. I know he's still a pagan wife, stay with him. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Why, Paul? Come on. He goes on and says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Not saved, not saved, but sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What in the world are you saying, Paul? I'm saying that the marriage is honored before God, even if one is not a believer. If there's a believer in the marriage, the believer is caused for the whole marriage to be looked at by the Lord as honorable and acceptable and the children of an honorable and acceptable marriage. So Paul says, if you're a believer and he's not, you stay with him. And if you're a believer and she's not, you stay with her. And then he goes on, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under such bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. But then he says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, he's not saved yet. Well, she's still not paying attention. It's just gotten worse. You know what? You keep praying. You entered into a covenant. You pray for her. You pray for him. And you give God time to work. Now, I understand, and this could open up a can of worms of all kinds of pain and heartache in marriage today. But this is a very simple process of discernment. Listen to me. Any partnership, even made without discernment, even made outside of Christ, any partnership can be redeemed. It can be redeemed. If, if we will honor it with integrity, promises kept honor God. So we keep our promises. And, and this is the example of, of the leadership of Israel. We will not break the promise that we made before God. We cannot kill these people. Yes, they were marked out for condemnation, but we gave them peace, and we did it in the name of the Lord. We can't go back on this. You know what's gonna happen, by the way? 500 years later, King Saul is gonna look at the Gibeonites and say, let's take them out. They should have been taken out 500 years ago. Let's take them out now, and he's going to seek to destroy, and he will kill a number of Gibeonites. And by the way, the story you won't find in the Bible, it is implied. It's implied because David will come along and, and, and it's, it's told that seven of Saul's grandsons who possibly were complicit in this 
attempted Gibeonite genocide will pay for it with their lives. So it's really an interesting, the, the intrigue of Gibeon goes on much further. Centuries later, Saul violates the peace covenant that the leadership made, and his grandsons will pay for it. Why will they pay for it? Well, that's another teaching for another time. <laughs> Probably because they were involved, okay? Spiritual discernment. Listen, spiritual discernment affects every aspect of our lives. It is so much more than looking for a demon under every rock. You know, that, that, that's, that's actually on the superficial side that, that we think, oh, well, you know, it's that whole thing about spiritual warfare as a Christian idiom. There, there's a really funny YouTube thing out that Hillary showed me, a couple of pastors in the office, and everything that goes wrong is spiritual warfare. Goes to make a copy. Hey, there's no paper in here. Not spiritual warfare. And it's funny, and, but, but we almost get to the point where we kind of tongue-in-cheek, we'll use the phrase or, or, we're, or we use it loosely. Listen, spiritual warfare is constant in the promised land, constant in the Christian life. And our guard needs to be up because we live in a world where so many appear to be other than what they really are. Oh, but she was so perfect before, I'm, before we got married. She was just, she was the right one. She was, she was an angel sent down from heaven. You didn't pull back her hair and see the horns. That's <laughs> the problem. But you made a commitment. Now, again, I'm not trying to hammer on marriage because I understand in a marriage between a Christian, a believer and a non-believer, I, I understand. It's painful, it's difficult, it's heavy, but understand, Christian brother or sister, it is sanctified. Pray for them. Hold the commitment. And you can apply this to any commitment or contract that we make. You, you, uh, you buy a car and get into a contract to buy a car. Follow through with the commitment. Philippians 1 verse 9 says this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So discernment, discernment, that even in the case of being lied to and tricked into some kind of agreement, discernment does not deny integrity, dis dis discontent will dilute discernment, and discernment, discernment depends on direct counsel. So what's the outcome of all this? The outcome of the Gibeonite ruse may not be what you expect. Look at verse 21. Chapter nine, verse 21. So the leaders let them live. They said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation just as the leaders had spoken to them. Huh. Okay, the villagers of Hill City now are wood gatherers and, and water carriers, all right? Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us? Saying we are very far from you when you're living within our land, therefore you are cursed and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Ha, we got you, you're our slaves. The word slaves there, note this, it's abed in Hebrew, and it means ministers or servants. Now, it can be applied to slaves, but you can't think of slavery the way, you know, the last 200 years thinks of slavery. You gotta go back to the view of, 
of indentured servitude in the Bible, and that's what he's talking about. You are now indentured servants to Israel. You're gonna do as we ask you to do. You're gonna be ministers to us, but this is amazing because the curse is actually a blessing. As the reason for their roots finally comes out, verse 24, so they answered Joshua and they said, because it was certainly told your servants and they have already accepted it. They use the word servants right there. It was told us that the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim, had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we fear greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. And thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel and they did not kill them, but Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. Where is the place which he would choose? Anyone? Jerusalem. Ultimately, the place which he would choose for his name to rest would be Jerusalem. Before that, it would be Shiloh. And then it would be Jerusalem. Why? Because at Shiloh stood the tabernacle. And in Jerusalem ultimately would stand the temple and the Gibeonites would be hewers of wood and carriers of water for the temple of God, for the house of the Lord. This is the punishment for the Gibeonite scam. It's proximity to worship. Now, now stay, dial in, if you, if you kind of zoned off at all, come back. Because you gotta hear this. This is the part that to me was just like mind-blowing. This is so cool. Proximity to worship. These deceivers are now gonna be brought right into where every single day they are drawing wood and carrying water for the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple. These deceivers, the Gibeonites, are gonna be close to the worship of Yahweh. Now they receive this without question or without fight. And it's so encouraging to me because where discernment is concerned, discernment depends on direct counsel, as I said. Dis, uh, discontent dilutes discernment and discernment does not deny integrity. But number four, number four, we need to understand this as we fight the victorious Christian life, we fight these battles. Number four, the deceivers are the deceived. The deceivers are the deceived. They are often duplicitous because they don't really know the character of God. They've been lied to. But what do you mean? All they know is what they've been told. The Gibeonites, all they know is they are lined up for murder. All they know is they're on death row. All they know is this people are coming in and their God is a bloodthirsty God who's gonna wipe out our land and so we gotta, we gotta protect our hides. We gotta do something here and so believing the lies they've been told, they tell a lie to try and cover themselves. The deceivers are the deceived. The Gibeonites do not understand or know the compassion of God. They don't understand the nature of this Yahweh. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So listen, while Jericho may well represent the fortified world against which we fight, 
And while I may recall the enticement of the flesh, the Gibeonites are not the devil, they are the deceived. They are themselves deceived, which is why they have become deceivers. To protect themselves. They better represent those who in the promised land, in or around the church, they just don't get it. They just don't understand yet. They don't understand that Rahab the harlot was saved because she asked to be saved. Do you realize that's how simple it is? And that's why I said early on, if all the people of Jericho had gathered around Rahab and lowered the gates and held up their hands and said, we want peace, we repent, we want to serve you as children of God, we want to do the right thing here, what would God have done? Wipe them out. No, because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Look at Nineveh in the days of Jonah. An entire pagan people saved because they repented. That is the heart of God. And the Gibeonites didn't know that. All they saw was a mighty people and a mighty angry God. So we have to lie. We have to deceive. And the deceivers are themselves the deceived. They don't understand that even the outsider can find peace with God through faith. Ephesians chapter two, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, they weren't far off. They said, we're from a far off place. No, they weren't. They were 12 miles away. But spiritually, they're about as far away as you can get. They didn't know. They didn't understand. If you don't know that you can be drawn near to Jesus, you will deceive others and play the angles to protect your own hide. And people will do this. So what do we do with the person of the ruse? We do what Joshua did. Romans 14, verse 17 says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So how do you do that with the deceived deceiver? Because they're dangerous, don't get me wrong. The deception that a non-believer will sometimes bring can be a threat, and you got to discern that. But what do you do with that person? You let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water. Meaning what? Hewers of wood, bring them to the altar of the cross. You bring them to the altar. You have them carry the wood. That's what the wood was for, the hewers of wood. They would cut the wood and bring it to the tabernacle, to the temple for the sacrifices. Bring them to the altar of the cross and there they will see the sacrifice take place. They will see the sacrifice, Jesus, the crucified Christ, and there they will find salvation. Bring them to the altar fires of the cross and bring them to the waters of cleansing. Let them bring the water, uh, the cleansing waters of baptism, the living water of the Holy Spirit. See, Joshua says, you will now serve in the proximity of our very worship. You will serve our God. You know what happens? The Gibeonites will become to know their God, to understand their God. They'll be there bringing in the wood as the sermons are being preached in the temple. They'll be bringing in the water as the priests are offering sacrifice for the people. 
They will find themselves servants of the temple, and there is hope for the deceived by the altar and by the cleansing. The Gibeonites will go on to a blessed future in Israel. Just just listen to this list. Once the veil of their deception is lifted, they become temple and tabernacle servants. Gibeon will go on to be one of the Levitical cities. Joshua is actually going to station priests in Gibeon, which is marvelous. A Gibeonite named Ishmaiah was one of David's mighty men. The tabernacle would itself rest at Gibeon in the days between Shiloh and Jerusalem. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 16.39 and 1 Chronicles 21.29 if you want to look that up. God would speak directly to Solomon at Gibeon. 1 Kings 3 verses 4 and 5. There were Gibeonites who a thousand years later would return to the land among the exiles and Gibeonites who would help rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem tied in, connected to the people of Israel. Ezra chapter two, verses 43, and Ezra chapter seven, verse seven. Nehemiah chapter three, verse seven. Nehemiah chapter seven, verse 46. And these Gibeonites at that time have a special name. They're called, and you'll see it translated in your Bibles, temple servants. When you see temple servants in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's the Gibeonites. And the name temple servant, it's literally Netanim. The Gibeonites become the Netanim, which means the given ones or or the devoted ones. That's the future for the Gibeonites because, because Israel kept their covenant because they discerned the right thing to do, though they were not discerning and got deceived. When they realized it, they did the right thing and they brought the Gibeonites in close to worship, to the altar fires and to the waters of cleansing. Now, One negative, there would be a Gibeonite false prophet. Jeremiah chapter 28 tells us a guy by the name of Hananiah, the son of Azur, and he would lie and and falsely prophesy and within two months be dead because of it. But the point is, is this. Those who come out of deception often become the most discerning servants of the Lord. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was you. You came out of a life deceived. You came from a place where you saw church and Christians and the whole thing is, yeah, those judgmental, condemning, negative people only to find out that we are all saved from condemnation in Jesus Christ. Only to find out, actually, when I look around the room, it's pretty humble people who realize we're only saved by Jesus. We're servants of the Lord. We're devoted ones. We're we're like the, the Gibeonites. We have been brought in to the worship. Oh, to be hewers of wood and carriers of water for the sake of the worship of God. So the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 3.16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So what I'm saying here with all this is don't be too quick to condemn a deceived deceiver. Don't be too quick to condemn. Bring him to the altar fire. Bring them to the cleansing water, the cross, and the Spirit of God. As for you and me, the story reminds us to keep seeking spiritual discernment in a very deceptive age, asking for our counsel to come from the mouth of God. And if we live with that integrity, the Gibeonite in your life may yet learn 
what the Gibeonites in the promised land ended up learning. What's that? Psalm 84.10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Father, I pray for discernment for all of us that, that we would not be caught off guard like now again Joshua and the Israelites are. Now again, no one sought your counsel, your mouth, your word. And so they were tricked. They were duped and deceived. And that can happen to us and it happens so easily. We get tricked into believing this is the right way or that's the right thing or he's the right person. Father, help us to be discerning. We ask for the wisdom from above. We ask, Lord, for wisdom and understanding that we do not naturally have but that you spiritually give. We pray that we, like the Gibeonites, having come out of the deception of the world, that we could be as close to you as possible that we could be worshiping there at the altar fires, that we could bear the water, the living water of cleansing and of your spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would be people of discernment and integrity in this world, quietly living our lives to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. 